It's wonderful to be with you again, and I will trust that God is going to speak to us through his word tonight. But before we turn to God's word, can we just pray again? Let's just bow our heads before the Lord. Father, we thank you for what has already taken place in this house today. Lord, the, the, the songs of Zion has been sung. And Lord, we, it's not just lip service, but it's from our very hearts. Lord, because of who you are and because of what you've done for us. But Father, we pray now as we turn our attention to your word that your blessing would be upon it. And Father, we pray that you would speak to both believer and unbeliever. And Lord, if there's someone in this place under the sound of my voice that is still outside the safety of Jesus Christ, that is still not saved, Lord. I pray that tonight this would be the very door of heaven for their soul. Lord, we pray, Father, for your servant, Pastor Ken Davison tonight. We thank you for his years of faithfulness in this house and his years of faithfulness to you in ministry. We pray for Alice and his wife, and indeed for the children and the whole family circle. Lord, would you strengthen him? And as was the case with the Lord Jesus when he came out of the wilderness, may he come back into this pulpit in the power of the Spirit. And may great days lie ahead for this church, and indeed for all of your people who are ill and in need of your touch. Lord, we don't even need to ask you because you know your sheep, and you look after your sheep. Bless this church. Bless this word and go on and glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people say it tonight. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to Luke chapter 13 tonight. I'm going to read just two verses as a basis for the thoughts that God has given me. Luke 13, 22 to 24. We're told these words, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Verse 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be be few. This question that was asked of the Lord on the way to Jerusalem is one of the most important questions that we could ever raise. And it's important because it's a question that concerns us all here without exception. And I take it for granted that the vast majority under the sound of my voice tonight are believers, but there may be someone listening to me in this house or indeed online, and you have not yet committed your life to Jesus Christ. The important question for you tonight is not will there few be saved, but will you, friend, be saved? See, perhaps there's someone here and you're in the prime of your life. You're young energetic and in good health because this is the case of your mind set on the life that is ahead of you. You feel that you're a long way off death. But remember, young man, young woman, this life is short and uncertain. The scripture says, do not boast of tomorrow 
For you do not know what a day will bring forth. You see, we all feel that we have those three score years and ten, but it doesn't always work out that way. I'm always mindful of this when I preach. I remember, and I often tell the story of having an event during my football career at Motherwell Football Stadium. It was called Encounter at the Well. And on the south stand that sunny night, I remember there was over 2,000 young people in the stand. And I preached a message from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 that says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. And what the, the Lord was saying through Solomon was, Young man, young woman, live for pleasure, live for sin if you must. But know that for all of these things, the verse finishes by saying, One day God may bring you into judgment. And I talked to both young and old, but especially the youth, that they ought to heed chapter 12, verse 1, that says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before these wicked days come. And you know, there was 35 decision cards filled in that night. But here's why I often tell this, because there was a pastor's son there, and he had become so hardened to the gospel. He heard sermons until they were coming out his ears. But that night he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And you know, his daddy sent a message to me to say, thank you, son, that you preached the whole gospel because my son was tragically killed in a car accident three weeks later. He was launched out into eternity, but his daddy took the the funeral of his own son and cried tears of sorrow in his words, but also tears of joy that he went out into eternity and it it was right with his soul. And perhaps I'm speaking to someone tonight and, you know, you're on in years and you're saying to yourself, well, do you know what? It'd be better off for me just to pass on now. I've had my life. Well, friend, let me remind you also that death is not the end, but merely a doorway into eternity. And the vital question I ask you tonight is not, will few be saved, but will you be saved? I'm thinking of my mother-in-law, uh, her father, George, he went to the Whitewell Church for many years with wee Barbara, who's a saved lady. And as I often say, George used to show up at the meetings with his wee shirt and tie on. He heard the fiery sermons from Pastor James McConnell. And then at the end of the meeting, he used to go out and stand at the door and shake hands with everybody going out the door. And one man came up to me and says, is he one of the pastors? And I said to him, he's not even a Christian. <laughs> Do you know, the reality is, in his life, the summer has ended and the harvest has passed and he's still not saved. I wonder, am I speaking to someone here tonight? And you can identify with this. You've heard the gospel, but it doesn't have the same effect. And now you're in your latter years and you're still hardening your neck. I asked you the important question tonight. Not are there few that be saved, but will you be saved? Now, there's three things from our text that I want us to consider tonight. And the first is this. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Here was this person who came to Jesus with this all-important question, Lord, are there few that be saved? What exactly was on his mind? Because you see, there's no more important issue to deal with than this. This is a matter of life or death, heaven or hell. Do you know, I could speak of what it what we're saved to tonight. But you know, for time's sake, I want to focus in on what we are saved from. 
To be saved means to be saved from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? Well, the Bible makes it clear. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Bible says the soul that sins will die. The Bible says again, it's appointed unto man once to die after this, the judgment. And the scripture makes it clear that there's only one who is qualified to deliver us from such a penalty. In Matthew 1, 21, the angel told Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And he saves his people in two ways. Number one, by his impeccable sinless life and also by his atoning death. In Genesis 2, it tells of how Adam, our federal head, served as our representative and that because of his disobedience, sin entered upon all and death by sin. And we're told that sin reigned from Adam to Moses and then the law was introduced. Why? So that sin might become exceedingly sinful. And in turn, we were condemned under the righteous requirements of that law for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. <laughs> but the good news of the gospel tonight is that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus was fully human, just like us, but different in one aspect, and that he was without sin. We see this taught constantly in the scriptures. Think about Luke chapter 3. We're told that Jesus comes to John to be baptized at the Jordan and John is amazed and he says, you come to me to be baptized? I have need to be baptized of you. But Jesus says, permit it to be so, John, for it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And of course, you know the story. As Christ goes down into the waters to be baptized and he's come up again, we're told that the heavens are opened unto him and the Spirit of God descends in bodily form like a dove and it lights upon him and the voice of the Father comes out of heaven and it says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, do you know what the Father was saying? My Son is impeccable. My Son is perfect. My Son is sinless. John 8, 46, to the Jews who opposed Jesus, he asked them a question. Which one of you convicts me of sin? And we're told he receives no answer. And again, in John 18, 38, when standing before Pilate and being examined by him, I think it's significant that Pilate reports back to those religious Jews, I find no fault in him. First Peter 2.22 tells us that he committed no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. And brother and sister tonight, as our representative, he saves us by living that perfect life, keeping the law that we could not keep in order that he might earn a perfect righteousness that would take every one of us to glory. Isn't he a wonderful savior tonight? Paul knew the importance of having this righteousness applied to his life. For he says in Philippians 3, 9, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Notice what Paul is saying tonight. Can you say this? 
He says, when I stand before God on judgment day, I don't want to be found trusting in my own efforts or works, but to be found in Christ, trusting in his perfect righteousness that comes through faith and dependence on Christ alone. Do you know something tonight? There's two types of righteousness in this world. There's our righteousness that the Bible calls filthy rags, and there's Christ's righteousness, which is perfect And you know what? On one, namely ours, Paul pours contempt. He calls it rubbish. But on the other, namely Christ, Paul glories in it and he stakes his eternal destiny in it. And I trust that you are as well tonight. But in addition to this, the Lord also saves us by dying that atoning death on the cross. Right from the beginning of time, There was a prophecy given that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And of course, Jesus was that promised seed. And it was at Calvary that he crushed the devil's head. And you know, at the cross, Christ's death met two requirements. Number one, we deserve the penalty for our sin, for breaking God's law, but he paid the penalty for that sin. Hebrews chapter 9, 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything had to be purified with blood because without the shedding of blood, there was no remission for sins. That's why from Adam all the way through to Christ, millions of animals were slain for a, as a sin offering. And yet amazingly, brothers and sisters, the writer of the Hebrews says that not one of those animals could have paid for sins. So what was God doing then when the Old Testament believer was coming to the tabernacle or they were coming to the temple and offering those multitude of animals? They were walking away free. They were walking away justified. The sins were forgiven. Well, do you know what God was doing? We're told in his divine forbearance, he was passing over all of their sins. And he was storing those sins up on an account. And upon the cross, from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, every one of those sins, past, present, and future, was heaped upon the Lamb of God. One can only imagine how this crushed him. And it's no wonder when Jesus was walking along the banks of the Jordan that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then also the second requirement was that we deserve to bear the wrath of God towards sin and be eternally separated, but instead he absorbed it. He was made what theologians call a propitiation, an object to bear away the wrath of God towards sin and the sinner. Matthew 27, 35 and 36, it tells us from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that's 12 to 3, there was darkness over the whole land at Calvary that day. The scoffers have thinned out. They've went back into the city. They're preparing for the special Sabbath. There's only a few lonely figures by the cross. John, the beloved disciple, Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, and a few others. The centurions are there. And there's a cry from the man in the middle cross. And listen, this, this was the cry. Eli, Eli, Lamas the Bachelor, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as if Jesus was saying, Father, where are you? I can bear the pain. I can bear the sin. 
But this estrangement is too much for me. And something terribly awesome took place for the first and only time in all of eternity. The loving fellowship between the Father and the Son in some shape or form, and don't ask me to explain it tonight, but it was broken down. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says, how is it that God can forsake God, and yet at the cross it happened? And it happened for one main reason, because as he looked upon that cross, he no longer seen his son, but he seen the curse, and Christ himself bears the wrath of his father towards sin. He separated for that brief moment. Do you know why, friend? So that we never had to be. Friend, if you're not saved, let me say this to you tonight. You need to put your trust not in your own merits, but on Christ's merits for you, his perfect life and his atoning death, because I tell you, that is the only payment that heaven will ever accept. This is what it means to be saved. But I asked you the question tonight, will you be saved? And then secondly, not only what does it mean to be saved, and we've seen that it means by trusting in Christ and Christ alone, But I want to ask, how many will be saved? You see, the reason I want to look at this tonight is because there's no other issue that's so misunderstood or confused, not just in this country, but right around the world. There's widespread misunderstanding out there about how many are truly saved and will make it to heaven. And the reason why this man in the crowd asked Jesus this question is because he himself was unsure of the answer. Do you know why? Because the general teaching of the rabbis in Christ's day is that they were God's chosen people and on account of their national identity, well, everyone's going to be saved. But after hearing John the Baptist preach and after hearing Jesus preach, no doubt this man is having his doubts because both came in to the respective regions and the first thing that they preach is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, when the religious Jews came out to see John, you know, he, he says this to them, and this statement is not how to win friends and influence people. It's not the sort of preaching you'll hear today from many pulpits, but John says to them, you're a brood of vipers. Flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, and do not think to say that we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And then John goes on to say this, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bring forth good fruit shall be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, that does not sound like all Israel will be saved. Jesus would do the same. He would clearly preach about a remnant that would be saved within the nation nation of Israel. To those same religious Jews who questioned him, he would say, why is it you cannot hear my word? It's not that you're not intelligent men. Do you know what he said to them? It's because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. To another father in Israel, he would say, you must be born again. So in the light of such teaching, the man then asked the question with anxiety, Lord, are there few that be saved? Friend, the exact same situation is happening all over this country. The vast majority hold to the view that we'll all get into heaven. I'm a devout Protestant. I march on the the 12th of July. God and Ulster, therefore I'll be saved. 
I'm a devout Catholic. You know, I keep all the ordinances of the Catholic Church. Therefore, that'll earn me salvation. Or I'm a good person. Or God is too loving to send me to a lost eternity. You know, there's a, there's a teaching out there even in the liberal church propagated by a man called Rob Bell, which reasons like this, God is a God of love. So therefore, everyone's going to make it in the end. Not according to Luke 16. And I want you to remember who told that parable. It was the loving Jesus who told that parable in Luke 16 because he talks about a rich man and Lazarus the beggar. And this rich man fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he would be a millionaire if he lived today. And this beggar Lazarus just laid his gate every day hoping to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table and we're told that not even the crumbs were given to him. But there came a day of reckoning. We're told that Lazarus was carried by the angels when he passed away into heaven, as it were. But this rich man, he did not get carried into glory, neither did he cease to exist, because we're told this, and in Hades, the grave or hell, he awoke, being in torment. And he began to cry, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may just dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. That doesn't seem like love wins in the end. How many times have we been, for example, to a funeral service and heard someone say, well... They're in a better place now. And you know as you know that they never had a testimony. They never lived a moment for Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer says, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of million, millions. And what does this prove tonight, brother and sister and friend? but that simply people flatter themselves into believing that there will be no difficulty in being saved and getting into heaven. No, friend, for the Bible clearly tells that only few will be saved and the vast majority of people will be lost. Notice how the loving Jesus answers this question. Verse 24, he says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Notice how Jesus describes the door. It's a narrow door. He tells us that we have to strive to enter in through it. And notice he tells us that only few will go through it. The clear view of the loving Jesus is that the vast majority will not be saved, but will be sadly lost. Are there few that be saved? The Bible's answer is clear. Yes. But the question I want to ask you if you're not a Christian tonight, is will you, friend, be amongst the few? And then thirdly, as I close, not only what does it mean to be saved, how many will be saved, but I want to ask the question, when must we be saved? You know, the question of how many is important, but knowing how and when to be saved is of vital importance. This person who asked the question, wanted a number of how many. He wanted percentages. He wanted figures. He, his chief concern um, was with all of these things, but the Lord, instead of giving him numbers, gives him a personal challenge about the time to be saved. Listen to verse 24 and 25 again. 
Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. The Lord draws his attention away from facts and figures to the question of time. Do you know why? Because the reality is the Lord knew there was coming a day when the offer of salvation would not be there anymore. Friend, I want to tell you something tonight if you're not saved. This is the greatest gamble of all. To know in your mind, as I've pointed out, that the Bible clearly states there's only few that are going to make it to glory. And to know that you're sitting in an hour of grace when that narrow door is open in this place tonight and yet saying to yourself, I'm going to leave it to another time. I often tell the story of two apprentice devils wanting to qualify in Satan's school of deception. And Satan calls them in on graduation day. And he says, I'm only looking for one of you, but I'm going to ask a question. And whatever one answers the question rightly will get the job. And he says, what would you tell a man, a woman, or a young person in order to keep them from becoming a Christian? And the first apprentice devil sits across the desk and says, Master Satan, I would tell them that there's no God. And Satan says, sorry, you do not qualify because the reality is everyone in their innermost recesses of their being knows that there's a God. Why? Because Romans 1 tells us that the the invisible things of Christ and the invisible things of God are clearly demonstrated in creation. And also that the very law of God is written on the conscience before it was ever written on stone. So Satan says, people may say they're atheists, but what they really are is agnostics. They just don't have the facts. For Paul says they're without excuse. You do not qualify. And he goes and calls the second apprentice devil and he says, what would you tell a man, a woman, or a young person in order to keep them from becoming a Christian? And and the second apprentice devil says, Master Satan, I have the answer. And he says, I would tell them to come back next week. And Satan smiles with glee and he says, you're the one for the job because they'll believe it every time. And the reason I preach with urgency about these things, yes, I've given you an example of a young person, but I can also give you another example of an older man in Alborough one night, East Yorkshire. I remember preaching with all of my heart and standing at the door and shaking hands with this man. And he went out and here's what you hear. Oh, great sermon, son. That encouraged me. And I said to him, sir, are you saved? And he says, I'm not saved. And I said, well, don't leave it too long until you get saved. And I got up into the pulpit next Sunday in Living Hope Church in Hull and I was about to preach and Mary Yorkovich comes towards me. I can see her to this day and she's she's, she's tears in her eyes because she knew the man's family. And she says, were you preaching to that certain man um, during the week in Auburn? And I says, I was, Mary. She says, this family member whom I know has sent a message to you to say that that man took a massive heart attack in his driveway and was launched out into eternity. Still not saved. Satan whispered, think about it. And he will whisper that to you tonight. This text teaches us tonight that we must not put off to tomorrow 
what God requires us to do today. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The Bible says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And this implies that there may come a time when he can't be found. Don't you just love Jesus? He doesn't dodge the question, but instead he gets to the heart of the matter. Don't be so much hung up on facts, but consider that you're in an hour of grace and the time is short. Now the door is open. And though it be a narrow door, we must strive to enter in. We must press in now and we must press in hard. I'm finishing, but I can't help but think of an illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. C.H. Spurgeon said that Pilgrim's Progress was the greatest book ever written outside of Scripture. And it's an awesome book. And in it we have the character Christian who is leaving the city of destruction and trying to get to the celestial city. And right at the beginning of the book, we read of how Christian is reading the book, which is the Bible. And he sees that the city in which he dwells is is going to be destroyed. That God's judgment is upon the city. And he begins to feel the weight of his sin. And how was he going to obtain eternal life? And it's then when evangelist comes alongside him with a scroll in his hand. And evangelist hands um, Christian the scroll. And when Christian opens up the scroll, it says on it, flee from the wrath that is to come. And Christian asks evangelist, flee where? Where can I go? And evangelist points him over the hill to a gate called the wicked gate. He said, if you can get to the gate, then you'll be on the road to the celestial city. And so Christian puts his rucksack on his back and off he goes. And you know, as he's leaving the city of destruction, we're told that his wife and even his children come out and they say, come back, don't leave us behind. And even as he walks by his neighbors, they they mock him and say, you're a fool. What are you doing? Come back into the city. But we're told a Christian goes on with his fingers and his ears. And listen to what he says. He says, life, life, I must have eternal life. He was not going to let anything stop him. I want to tell you this, friend. See, the night I got saved. All my mates were laughing at me the next couple of days in school, but I was singing that little song, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. There may be someone here and you're thinking of turning back. Turning back to what? Turning back to what, friend? You must have eternal life. Like Christian, if you're not saved, strive to enter in today. And this doesn't mean that salvation is a result of your own efforts. Salvation is off the Lord. Would everybody say amen to that? But when God calls a sinner, he will grant you the grace to come. Do you know what I found? Somebody says, oh, I would love to become a Christian, but I can't keep it. The reality is you can't keep it. He keeps you. Would you say amen? amen. He saves, he keeps, and he satisfies. Do you know, friend, and I'm finished, it's possible to stand at this narrow door and yet never enter into eternal life. Do you know it's possible to have God prompt you time and time again and never take that final step? I pray that you would not be almost a Christian tonight, but that you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ.
What does it mean to be saved? It means putting your trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone. How many will be saved? Few. And yet you sit here in the land of the living under the sound of the gospel with an opportunity. And when must you be saved? The Bible makes it clear if you're not a Christian, tonight is the night when you must come to Christ. Please come and speak to myself. Come and speak to one of the elders. And uh, we'd be glad to point you to Jesus Christ. But I trust you've enjoyed God's word tonight. Let's just pray and I'll hand it back. Okay. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Father, the first thing we thank you for is for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that, Lord, just as the prophets predicted, you said you would send your son and you did send him. We thank you for his virgin birth. We thank you for his sinless life and how he purchased that perfect righteousness for each one of us that would help us to obtain glory. He kept the law that we could not keep. We thank you, Father God, that there was no other good enough to pay the price for sin, but he and he alone could open heaven's gate and let us in. And Father, we thank you that even your son for that brief moment was separated so that we would never have to be tonight. But Lord, I'm very aware that there may be someone listening online and there may be someone even in this house tonight and they're not saved. But Father, they're in an hour of grace and I pray that they wouldn't leave it any longer but long after my voice falls silent that your voice would continue to speak. Father, thank you. Now as we worship you, would you receive of our worship and separate us in safety and in peace. We give you glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, if you need saved, come and see us. Don't walk out those doors tonight. A lady last week was determined that she was going to come to Christ. This could be the door of salvation for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.